the very concept of the institution of higher learning is about to be broken. This gym teacher, you have no idea what he's capable of. Enough is enough. It's time for a collected activity of all of us who are engaged in resistance in some form or other to learn how to collaborate together, to end our isolation, to end our particulars, and to become part of that universal movement that says... The revolution will be broadcast. Intellectuals are not a, a cherished aristocracy within society. They, they are sort of isolated within their own ivory tower. Now I realize that you must stick close together because you share a common goddamn backbone, but I want to see some movement. You have to have a movement, please. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. The Fundamental Movement. Yes, welcome to The Fundamental Movement. We're glad you're back. I'd like to say we have a, a great show lined up for you today, but that would be self-praise and backslapping, so I won't say that. This is going to be a very ordinary show. Uh, with us today are the three usual suspects on the show, uh, the Fred Fenster of the group, uh, Nathan Horn. Welcome back, Nathan. Thanks, Dean. Good to be here. <laughs> the, the Kaiser Sose himself, um, I think he's back in China, is Andy Vasily. Welcome back, Andy. Yes, I um, am back in China. And let, let me make one quick clarification here. When we refer to me being unemployed, okay? <laughs> this Mate, is, don't, I, don't I, he so really doesn't have a job. About it. <laughs> this, this, this is me being unattached to an institution, okay? So, so okay. there. I would, so you're I unattached? Would, is that what we're supposed to call you? Unattached? <laughs> how, would, how, would, how would Neela feel about that? <laughs> Very attached to <laughs> Hence why we call him the Kaiser Sose of the group. <laughs> Doesn't know where he fits in. And the Dean Keaton, the very debonair, although lacking um, the same amount of hair on his head, we have Aaron Beatley from who, who Kentucky. Am I? Welcome. Who, who am I? <laughs> Didn't you guys ever watch The, the Usual Suspects? I, I don't know. I'll, I'll Google it while we're talking. Kevin Zagelsi. Oh, 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 no, I don't, I don't watch movies, man. That's two and a half hours. I can't sit still, man. Kevin Spacey, Gabrielle Bernard, oh, my jokes are lost on you guys anyway. Uh, so I got, I got it. I got it. Oh, I'm glad you did, Andy. <laughs> so we, we're gonna we're gonna our show today. We've called "Time's Running Out, Dude." Um, what's come out in a, a number of our previous podcasts? We've spoken about this issue that we have a very finite amount of time. Uh, in our physical education classes and there's been a genuine consensus and frequent questions about how we can maximize that, that time. So what we wanted to do today uh, during the podcast is really talk about a typical lesson, the things that we all have to deal with in every single lesson and see how we could get the most benefit um, back into our teaching time, how we can cut out the stuff that doesn't really matter, how we can do the things that matter really well um, so we can maximize the learning and the activity time that the kids experience in our PE classes. How's that sound, guys? It sounds like a topic to go with today. Sounds good. Sounds great. All right. So why don't, why don't yep. we start right at the beginning? So we've, we've, got, we've got kids coming to our PE class, and I think nearly every school uh, that I've worked in has always had a requirement of kids to get changed, to put on some sort of athletic attire. Um, I don't know if that's the case in your schools or whether that's – I imagine that's the case. But maybe we can talk about ways in which we could – because we, we all agree this is this chews up a considerable amount of our teaching time, right? 
Is that a general consensus? Yes. Yes. Yes, yeah. I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. For the most and part, my, in the U.S., in the U.S., it's a secondary. It's a after elementary that they have to change out, but it is it does eat a lot of time. Yeah. So I, that's I think that's the same in Australia, and I mean my research showed that you you can lose between fifteen and thirty percent of a class time getting kids changed out. So let's talk about some strategies. What what are some things we can discuss that cut you know make this which has nothing to do with learning. Absolutely nothing to do with learning. How can we expedite uh, the time that kids spend getting changed, short of walking in the change room with a whip? Because I don't think that's entirely appropriate either. Can I, I would, I'm not being a smart aleck, but just why do we do it? Yeah, <laughs> good point. Yeah. I mean, well, really, why? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't serve anything. It's all, all the only benefits of it are all negative. At least, again, speaking from the U.S., where they have to go into a locker room and a male teacher can't supervise females, obviously, and sometimes you can't supervise the males. So it's a, just fraught for, for bullying and all other kinds of things. There's You force kids during a time of their life where they're um, not very confident in their own selves and they're finding themselves in new gangly bodies every day. Say, here, go in and get naked in front of your peers. <laughs> it just makes no sense why we do it. And you guys tell me what 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 arguments do you hear if you've ever presented that for why why we do it I think, Nathan I think for me like yeah. I'm just going to say flat out say like just let's just not do it like I I guess I'm lucky in my in my situation my kids don't change um they come to school on the day that they have PE in their PE uniform um they do PE and they stay in that uniform for the rest of the day now I understand that obviously brings in um, some sort of hygiene issues maybe as the kids get a bit older and they sort of start to sweat more and, and hormones and things like that. But really is it, you know, like there are ways of, of um, keeping yourself hygienic after exercise that uh, don't necessarily re revolve around changing clothes, especially here in Singapore where it's so hot anyway. Like they're going to they're change clothes, they're going to continue to sweat. It's not going to make any difference whatsoever. Um, so my opinion is that like we just don't need to change. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to uh, say I agree because you guys will say that's backslapping, but I will give you my perspective. And, and same with uh, as Nathan in the international school setting, I don't have to get uh, my elementary kids to change. They wear their house shirt to uh, PE. If they don't have their house shirt, I still let them participate. Um, they're required to wear, obviously, proper foot footwear, but even if they come in Crocs or something like that, I will – De decide. Uh, I, I will let them participate regardless. But the idea. Do kids of, come to your school wearing Crocs? Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, they'll wow. come. They'll come in Crocs. They'll come in different types of, of footwear. But to PE, it depends on the activity. And if they really can't take part because of footwear, then it's unfortunate. But for the most part, I will let them always be engaged and participate. But getting back to changing, when you look at recess time and you go outside, you will often see middle schoolers in jeans and, and different types of uh, attire still engaged running around the field playing soccer or whatever sport is going on at recess. So again, they're going to run around and participate if the uh, experience is worthwhile to them. They will take part regardless of what they're wearing. Aaron, Aaron, you there? Turn your mute button off, mate. I know you've pressed it. 
Sorry, this annoying call. Hey, um, so what we've talked about, and the argument I get is, is here when I present this is hygiene. Yet, I know, again, I can't speak for other parts of the world, but I know the kids here, like in high school, if they have to change out for PE, they'll just wear like those mesh shorts underneath their jeans, and they walk in the locker room, drop trial, take their jeans off, and come back out, and they're ready to go. They don't even change shirts. <laughs> so it's like all they're doing is going and putting jeans over their sweaty legs. So it, the hygiene thing is just, and as, okay. as Andy said, you go out for recess, I, I get it. And, and all it does is, is telling kids, if you don't have the proper gear, you can't be active. No, you can be active anytime, anything. Yeah, so this is, I mean, so I did a little bit of research on this, and I did it I, when I started my master's program. I was really interested in in looking at the barriers that were preventing kids from participating in physical education and school sport, and by far the most frequently expressed reason that affected enjoyment at least in high school PE was this notion that they had to get changed. And and I'm, I'm, I'm in violent agreement with all of you, like it, it's seen – the arguments that come forward for it are terrible. So one is hygiene. And you said, oh, maybe there's some hygiene issues. I've yet to see a paper published that says that kids that don't change out for sport are less hygienic than those that do. And right, because we see them play in the playground, whatever. I don't think it's a big issue. You sort of touched on the only the only bit of evidence that I could find of why you would ask kids to change was around the footwear, wearing footwear that's appropriate for the learning context. And think about it, we do that in other subjects. If you're doing woodwork or metalwork, we make kids wear closed shoes if they're in the science lab. If they're doing food technology or cooking, we make them wear a hairnet, right? So I, I, the only argument I can see is if they're wearing footwear that's appropriate to the learning context in which you're exploring PE. The biggest the biggest body of evidence that sits around uniforms and having kids wear specific clothes, and this gets me every time, it's all about discipline. And it talks to a school's capacity to control the behaviour of their students. And in countries like Australia and Britain where school uniforms are compulsory, I know it's different in North America, is it's also the one thing that principals won't budge on. They want their kids to wear and especially the girls. It's more oppressive for the girls than anyone. They want them to wear stockings and kilts and really uncomfortable clothes. And it breaks my heart that my daughters have to go to primary school wearing these heavy tunics so they're not as comfortable as the boys to run around and play. Um, And it's all about... It's all about uh, a perception of communicating what the school stands for. It's about branding. It's got nothing to do with learning, but it's the one thing that the policy in schools won't shift on. And I think um, for the people contributing to this podcast and even those for you listening, this is a serious conversation. If you can, can you imagine if any other subject area lost 15 to 30% of their teaching time straight off the bat over something that had nothing to do with learning? People would lose their minds, and or, I or, think go out. or graded or graded kids on their ability to change clothes. Oh, I, absolutely, like what what where my my kids have been dressing themselves since they were three, and I've been I've been dressing myself since I was thirty five. Like, give me a break. Um, You're spend, still approaching spend. expectations, Dean. You're still approaching expectations. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to put it on, did you want to add something quickly to that? No, I was um, just wondering. I was just wondering about the history of it. Like, like if I'm thinking, like you're you're talking about the sort of like rigidity of of school structures and stuff. Like, did this idea of that kids needed to change come from the fact that like back you know 
40, 50 years ago, uniforms were very bulky, or they still are, I guess, tie, blazers, things like that. So, like, I mean, that's not a, a safe thing. You can't have kids running around playing a, a game of rugby wearing ties, even though I'm sure kids do that at lunchtime. Um, yeah. Is that, is that where the history of this comes from, that, that uniforms so, were more formal and, and that we needed to change into something less formal to be able to be active? I think from a historical context, I think there was always that expectation. It, it, the, the uniform stemmed out of obviously the public, the UK public school system, where the almost what we call in Australia the GPS elite private schools, where boys and girls wear blazers and ties, very bulky clothing in in cold environments. So to then expect them to run around in and and and, and uh, participate. Uh, in athletic endeavor or any sort of physical activity, you know, it made sense to change out. I think, for me, I, 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 the the argument that gets pushed on back for me from principals is that you know we expect them to dress appropriately and look professional. And my argument is, well, why is that not the time they change out as opposed to being comfortable for the rest of the day? I spend most of my days in a polo shirt, shorts, and joggers, regardless of what I'm teaching. I'm comfortable in it. I feel that I, I'm more productive in, in that kind of attire. So my solution, and I know that's going to be a question that comes up, so what, what's the solution forward, is my conversation now with um, with schools is if you're going to have kids, if uniforms are a requirement, make the uniform or what kids wear to school being athletic conducive. In other words, that you should have physical activity and participation in your front of your mind. So if they need to wear closed shoes, kids have to wear closed athletic shoes to school they can wear shorts or track pants and they can wear a nice collared polo shirt something that can breathe something that they can feel uh, um, they can move in that should be the dominant thing conversely if you want them to wear ties and blazers there are formal occasions where that sort of uniform is required you know it might be an assembly or some sort of formal formal event i don't think it should be the norm though and i think especially in countries like ours where that does happen i'm I think they get. I think they get it topsy turvy. I am interested in speaking to Andy or Aaron, who work in schools where uniform, school uniforms, aren't an issue because the kids wear whatever they what they feel like, right? But maybe that brings its own issues. Andy, have you got something on that? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it always goes back to the question. I think of my own sons. You know, when when they get ready for school each day, I will just ask them to really reflect on what it is they're doing that day. And my son, Ty, loves playing soccer at, at, uh, during recess and after school. So he knows when he goes to, to choose his clothes for the day, he's not going to pick a pair of jeans because it restricts his movement. You know, so I think it's, it's getting kids to understand what it is they love doing and then ask them uh, to what extent they're comfortable participating in in whatever it is they're they're wearing you know so if if we're working on athletics and kids are wearing jeans well i'm not going to make them sit out because they're wearing jeans but i will have conversations with them about their ability to to be able to freely move and participate to the fullest in what it is they've chosen to wear and when i have those discussions i can see over time that the number of kids wearing jeans begins to lessen because they're hopefully reflecting on what it is they're doing and then making their own choices of appropriate attire to to fit whatever it is we're doing and that goes over to um, you know when they begin to find ways of moving that really resonate with them that they're hopefully going to wear comfortable clothing that allows them to participate to the fullest so 
I look at it, uh, at it through that lens and just getting kids to really reflect on whether or not they're comfortable participating in what they've chosen to wear for the day. So those are the discussions I have. Mm. So I think, I, I think yeah. for me, like there's a couple of things that I wanted to touch on. One was what you were talking about, Dean, about like the norm of, you know, like the norm right now may exist that, you know, we wear our formal uniform majority of the time and we change into our athletic gear when it comes PE time. I'd like to challenge that and try to like flip that um, norm and have to say, well, why, why can't it be the other way around? Like you said, where, you know, a majority of the time the kids are in uh, a, a comfortable um, set of clothes which enables them to be active like that's not stopping them from learning in their classroom and then instead of changing for PE they change into their formal attire for assembly or for these events that require them to have formal attire so that's one thing and I guess we need to I don't know how we, we start to change that norm um, but that's something I'd like to see for me my kids do have uniforms um, our school does have uniforms we have um, sort of I wouldn't call them formal and, and PE but like the the everyday uniform that the kids wear um, is a shirt with a collar. Um, it can be a sort of a, a button-down um, style, sort of like business shirt, or it can be, we have two versions, the other one is a polo shirt. Um, boys wear shorts. Um, if it's uh, the normal uniform, they're wearing a, a sort of a, a heavier cotton short, but still enables them to move around. Um, the girls wear a skort, um, combination skirt shorts. And then the PE uniform is is very similar, T-shirt and shorts for both um, lightweight, breathable material. So I mean, I'm lucky in that sense, and that's a necessity of the of the climate yeah, the in school. which uh, the uh, climate in which we're in. Like it, it wouldn't be, yeah, of course, we wouldn't be able to have um, heavy blazers and things like that. So mm. I mean, I I think solutions. Like the other thing I'm thinking about right now is like we've started this podcast about 15 minutes ago. So if we're thinking of this as a PE lesson. We might, if we're lucky, we might, if we're lucky, just be getting the kids out of the change room at this point yeah. to start our lessons. So well, maybe we should we... ask Aaron. Maybe we should ask Aaron, mate. How do you get them out of the change room, and what do you do next? Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. As we're talking about solutions, I think if you have to, if they have to change clothes, and a lot of people, teachers are in positions where they don't have any choice in the matter. That's just it's, it's dictated to them. I think you have to do something to entice them to get out of the locker room, whether it. I know schools around here that use um, fire hoses. Does that work? Fire hoses, yes. It? Fire hoses, and, and they smoke them out. You said so you put them to sleep like bees. Um, no, they they uh, they just they have activity. They have they. It's an option to change out the school I'm thinking about, but they have equipment out, and you get in and get out, and you can play with the equipment, and you can shoot hoops. You can throw, they play wall ball, they do all kinds of different activities, but it gets them out of the room quickly. Then, yeah. <laughs> then comes the issue of um, attendance and how in the heck do you take attendance? And, you know, I, they've, the school I'm thinking of, they put them in rows and then they go down pretty quickly through the rows. I, to me, at least when I was teaching and I've worked with middle schools and high schools as well, it takes you three or four weeks before the kids can figure out where their squad line is and where they should be. And then, and then you're trying to figure out, well, is Joey sitting where it's supposed to be or not? So the solution we've come up with is putting numbers on a floor and the, you just blow the whistle, give a signal, whatever you want to call it. They run to their number and then the teacher can quickly look and say number eight and number 40. If you have 700 kids like some schools, number eight and number 40 are absent. Here we go. And you don't have to have all this. And, and in a lot of schools here, they have to go in each class and put it into a computer and put the kids there. <laughs> Excuse me, that are absent. So, again, I think. You need a beer, mate? You want a beer? 
No, I don't. I, I, I need some. Uh, I need to shut up. Probably that's probably what that means. <laughs> Robitussin. Exactly. I, I'm, so again, I, I don't know what other ideas you guys have that'll that expedite the process of getting them out, but then not making them sit in squad lines when they get out and, and those types of things. Yeah. I've got it. Um, my, Sorry. My, 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 yeah, go. Ahead. No, I just wanted to ask Nathan. Like, I've never taken attendance because the classroom teacher takes attendance. They come to me. I, I'm not going to take attendance, but I'm just wondering if Nathan, uh, do you take attendance at your school, or you just begin the class without doing that? Uh, we don't take attendance um, yeah. because, yeah, there's nowhere really. Especially, I guess elementary school. There's nowhere for them to go between yeah. the yeah, classroom. Exactly. I, I think probably that's middle school, high school, where you know kids are coming from a, a variety of different places. Like they, yeah. these kids so, come from the classroom, so. We know that so I, I I did a lot of my teaching obviously in high schools and do you know I struggled with this for a long time and unfortunately and I'm not going to give him any praise but Aaron when I met Aaron the first time we were in um where were we Aaron Charlotte Charlotte yeah um for a Shape America conference I went to one of Aaron's sessions and this this notion of time was something I really struggled with and uh, Aaron can give a little bit more on this but he he run he he did run this 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 session where. Um, and I've taken this thinking is that I just have one rule when kids rock up to my class, they're always active, right? So there's the learning space that's marked out, might be the gymnasium or a football field, and they have to just be active. They can be walking, talking with their friends. Like I said, like you did, Aaron, that I have some gear, and if they want to pass a soccer ball or throw a footy around, they can do that. And it's, and when I realize that, you know, that's the, that's the number of students I'm going to get, I move into that that notion of being able to freeze kids early and you did something in one of your workshops where you know, kids understand if they hear the whistle it's hands on knees look at me right and my kids learn that the very first lesson whenever they hear my whistle they freeze and hands on knees look at me and I go spend the first lesson of every P class assigning them partners so they they do the uh, the grouping activity where they find a thumb wrestle partner a strike post partner then groups of they have a group of three that work on um simon says they have a group of four that do a stand-up sit down um activity they have a group of five where they do knots and they always know that group so when it comes to marking attendance i know the thumb wrestle they've all got a thumb wrestle partner and they have it for the whole year and when i say find your thumb wrestle partner and their thumb wrestle partner's not there for the day they have to come to see me anyway and find a new partner and I just say, who's your normal thumb wrestle partner? Or I pretty much learn quickly who that is, and I just mark that student absent. But like you, Aaron, I've seen lines from here to Gundagai, to use an Australian expression of, and literally chewing up 10 minutes. Bueller, Bueller, yeah. Bueller, right? Hey, there's just, a reference I get, a movie reference. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and dead said, I went, oh, my God. God, I'm, I'm dying here. I just want the kids to – and it sucks the life out of the energy and momentum that you had in the class anyway. You rock up, you're ready to go, and you're sitting there, sit down, mark the roll. It drives me nuts. So um, did, did anyone want to expand on that? Did you want to say something to that, Aaron, or do you have a question, Andy? What yeah, I, I've just got a question <laughs> about the instant activities. So so this is just a, a little snippet into I, – I will try to make the instant activities connect to the unit when – appropriate uh, and possible. But in general, do you think that there's a need to connect those instant activities to whatever unit is being rolled out in, in PE? So what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, can, I, can, I, can I go yeah, on that one? Jump in. Yeah, go, no. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Um, yeah, no, I, I, um, 
I talked to some people last weekend in Bangkok um, at a workshop about this, um, about warm-ups and, and games and stuff like that. And the idea that for me, yeah, like it can, I think it can connect to what you're doing or it can't. I think the most important thing is at the start is, yeah, just getting them moving. I think the benefit of having it connected to what you're doing is it almost allows for that formative assessment to take place before the, I mean, before the lessons even started, if you want to use those terms, like the kids, the kids think that they're playing or that they're, they're having free choice. But if you've put out certain equipment or provocations or things in place that are going to enable you to take provocations, you've been reading Andy's crap. Yeah. (laughs) I think that, I think that it'll allow you to, um, you can be seeing, okay, I've already identified three kids that are having issues with, with these, this sort of equipment or this activity, you know that they're going to be the kids that you're going to need to, uh, to focus more on. So I think that, yeah, it can be connected or it can't. Being connected definitely helps. Um, but you don't, maybe you don't want to do that all the time. You want to give the kids some element of choice in, in terms of what they're doing. I, th- I think with respect to that in the instant activity, I think the, the purpose of it, and whether you want to call it an intro or an instant activity, ASFP, everybody has a different name for it, um, is to, first and foremost, the main reason I do it is to establish my management because I want to make sure that, like if I'm going to do partners and I do toe-to-toe, then I probably do an instant activity that involves that. So when we get to start teaching skills with a partner, they've done that already. Because here, if you don't have them every, you have them every once a week, I mean, that's an eternity for a kid. And I also agree with exactly what Nathan said, that it doesn't have to be um, related to it. When I was teaching, I remember, forget, I had a, a lesson. I thought I was a, a just pure genius. Um, we had playground balls as the <laughs> You're intro. You're a genius. Oh, I know. And, and then we had playground balls for the fitness activity, and we had playground balls. We used some different manipulative skills for the lesson focus, and then we had a game that involved playground balls. And afterward, I thought, what if a kid hates playground balls? That was a pretty sucky lesson. And so I think in that sense, it's nice to mix things up, give them some choices, set your lesson. The other thing it could be doing is is if you have a tennis lesson coming up and you're not sure what your kids know about tennis, you can do some easy tennis activities to kind of find out where they are and and preview what you're doing in the future. So I think that, that first, not only does it set the tone for the lesson, but you can get a lot of information out of it and provide them with, um, uh, again, kind of setting up your lesson, if you will. Just before Dean, yeah. just before Dean goes, I just want to like put a little time out there right now. Probably right now, if we're looking at changing out time and having kids sit down in a row and take attendance, we might be just starting our lesson right now from the start of this podcast. So and, just imagine. and those listening, you think you're tired to listen to us? Think about how tired a kid yeah, is thirty exactly. minutes in and they haven't <laughs> done anything. I just wanted to make that make that point before Dean and and, and, and they're not drinking either, right? So, um, <laughs> the, uh, so Aaron, this this is this is. I, I think that conversation or that question that you asked, Andy, is really good, but I also don't think there's a definitive answer. Part of me, I agree heavily with Aaron. I think that it's that it's nice for kids to understand. I use it as a behavior management strategy. They know that they come in and they're active and it really doesn't matter at that phase. What we do, let's, let's look at the evidence. We know that their traditional warm-up routines, I, I, I tell my pre-service teachers, if, you know, if you're sending kids to run laps, or do shuttles or whatever. You, I, I say, you know what? If I see you teach, if I see you teach or do that in your lesson, you may feel a slight burning sensation about three feet below your neck, and that's my foot in your ass. Because I don't think that that in any way gets kids motivated to be, and it's not a very good practical warm up activity either. I think the idea of getting them to move and and 
understand that this is a moving environment. However they want to engage in that is really important. If you wanted to subtly include, Nathan, like you said, you might be doing a, a unit on ball games or um, specifically something with a football or a soccer focus and you just – and as, as a one-off, you throw out a bunch of soccer balls out there and you want to use it as a formative strategy. You know what? Brilliant. I think that, well, I'm not backstopping you, but I think that's got, I think that's got merit too. But establishing that the behavior routine, you walk into a class, um, and you're, you're active, you're active from the get-go is really important. Let's move to the next phase. All right. So you've got them active. I mean, we, I, I can we, can we agree on one thing that stretching most kids before PE is just a waste of time and you know sucks the life out of the class? If you're going to do stretching, you do it at the end. Is there a general consensus on that? One hundred percent agree. Yes, and don't stand them and do their squat yeah. lines and they do stretches and yeah. everybody counts to ten because we don't have any evidence that ten seconds is the key, etc. Yeah, I agree. All right, so as a group, we're saying, um, and if you're listening at home, if you're stretching kids before they do PE, you're a peanut, right? You're wasting your time, and they're not. It's not getting them any benefit anyway. So the second thing, <laughs> just call it for what I say, how I say it. Let's move into it. They're moving around, and you've got to get them in groups, right? No, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't necessarily have to be teams, but how do you group these kids? Because we, we all know you're in group one, you're in group two, you're in group three is doesn't work, and they just change, and they go and stand with their friends or whatever. Totally pointless. doesn't achieve anything. So I'd be interested to know – I know what I do, and I have an opinion on that, but who um, – who has a strategy they want to share? Nathan. Yeah, a um, couple of things. Um, technology has been something that has really helped me with that. Um, you've obviously got apps like Team Shake and Make My Groups where you can put the whole class in, push a button, and any combination, like I want groups of four or I want just pairs, anything like that. And I, I found that that works really well with, with elementary kids um, in particular because it stops those arguments of well, I don't want to work with him. I don't want to talk. I don't want to. I don't want to work with girls. It's just it's completely random. It's it's uh, for me. I found that that's worked really well. You don't hey, have Nathan. To, yeah, Nathan. Can I ask you a real quick question? Yep. Um, what do you do? Like you put them in groups of four, and you have a kid that's absent. Does it not screw up the whole system and take time to yeah, figure good, that out? And good question. No, it's really easy. I mean, all I all you do when you look at the the initial class list, you can see is you can just basically hit a button. For the kids that are absent, and then the, so you can mesh that with your attendance, then exactly, exactly. So okay. there's there's two in one. Right. I can just basically say, okay, Dean's not here today, and Andy's not here today. Click the. Those no, you should names. no, you should say Joey because he's the one. Well, Joey's not here to today, so I can I can click his name <laughs> off and then hit hit shuffle, and yeah. it will do things. The great thing about it is as well, and this the kids don't know this is that as a teacher, you actually have control over who's in which group, so you can actually like separate certain manipulate kids, it. manipulate the kids. Oh, I don't want this kid with this kid. I don't want this kid with this kid. And you hit um, shuffle in it and it works. So I think like technology is one way to do that. Other ways that I've done it in the past, really simple ways. I'm always trying to think of um, new ways to do it because I like to, I guess the kids, I don't like the kids to find a pattern in what I'm doing because then they'll be able to manipulate that themselves. So it could be things like, okay, rock, paper, scissor with someone. If you win, you go on in rock, paper, scissor with the winners, the winners rock, paper, scissor with them. And sort of you end up sort of whittling it down to, to the way that you want to do it. So I think there's a, a number of ways to do it in which you can either do it really quickly with technology or you can do it with an with a instant activity, if we want to use that word, to be able to group your kids as well. So you, yeah, you're, I, going to te- you're going to teach in Samoa where they don't have iPads. What are you going to do, Aaron? I think the 
again, I had to come with this workshop that Dean was talking about is the whole idea of a freezing them. But then to get them in the groups that you set up the routines that they know early on that when you say toe to toe, they get toe to toe with a partner. And if they don't have a partner, they go to the middle because there's so many things you can do with toe to toe to toe with a partner. They can do things together or you can have one partner raise their hand. They go to one side of the room, the other partner raise their hand, go to the other side, and now you have two teams. And you don't have to worry about how many kids are there. There's no way to get them even if there's 23 kids. So somebody's going to have 11 and somebody's going to have 12. It's just, and you see how quick I did that math? That's pretty good, huh? And so, <laughs> You must have a PhD. You must have a PhD yes. in statistics. No, I have a calculator pulled up on my computer right now. So <laughs> it's nice to do that. And then the grouping, I rarely ever do one, two, one, two, one, two, because, or one, two, three, one, two, three, because inevitably some kid's going to say, what's my number? And you're the first kid in the line and you can't figure out your number. And by Friday, that really ticks you off as a teacher. So I usually just put them in groups of three. And then I can say one partner, one person raise your hand. If your hand's raised, you go over here. Next person raise your hand, you go over here. Last person. And now I have three equal groups and I can go from there. And I don't have to know how many kids are in the class. I don't, I, I don't even have to know the kids. I can teach, and I've done it. I've had some videos of me teaching. It's, it's kind of an interesting site. But I didn't know the kids. I didn't, and I just did toe-to-toe to get them in as equal groups as I can. Um, I, again, it's not the be-all, end-all, but it's pretty quick. It's efficient. They know if they don't have a partner, they come to the middle. I don't let them pick because I don't let them pay. If they come to the middle, I find them a partner. If they come quickly, I usually let them pick. But if they lollygag to the middle... And I, and, you know, if I choose not to find a partner, and my rule usually is if you make eye contact with someone, that's your partner. Rule, and if I see it, I address it as misbehavior. But um, Andy, I think you have some thoughts on this as well. I, I know I've talked to you about this. Yeah, with with me, I, I guess I'm kind of old school in the sense that I've used the the apps before, and and that worked well for me. But I think for me, it always goes to the to the dynamics, the group dynamics, and what's mm. happening, and the relationships. That, uh, you know, I can read things. You know, and as a teacher, we're always reading our our students. So depending on the group dynamics and, and the general feel to the class, I base my groups on on that. Um, it depends on what the uh, situation is at the beginning of the class, how many people I need in the group, etc. But uh, for the most part, I will I can group in. In, in under a minute, if if I'm choosing the groups, if I let the kids decide the groups, again, in an international school, we have a high Korean population. The Koreans tend to gravitate towards one another. So when I um, set the criteria for kids deciding the groups, I ensure that they have to be multicultural and uh, there needs to be a gender balance. That requires me to step in at times and, and kind of switch kids up and move kids around. But Generally, it's a balance between me selecting the groups, letting the kids decide upon the groups, but everything depends upon the group dynamics at the start of the class. And we can read our students, and and that's what I focus on when grouping. So I don't use any particular strategy. It depends on the moment. Okay, uh, you're Padwan, Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, Luke Skywalker using the Force there, Andy, which is, sounds <laughs> sounds quite mystic. But I, to, part of me thinks that that's, that's almost like the sixth sense of teaching, understanding the dynamics, right? I think um, that's probably a very advanced uh, – I, I just think of how many people teach a class for the first time. And I, I take a lot of heart from um, I, when I did Aaron's workshop and understanding this early grouping and this behavior right from the get-go. 
kids understand rules, a group, if they don't find someone, they get in. But also promoting socially inclusive behaviour, which I think we've, we've spoken about. We want every kid to feel involved and we want to reward kids that want others to participate with them more than the most skillful kid in the class. So one of the, one of the strategies I use is the golden ticket rule. And I, I might carry – I don't carry around apps because I'm a technolo- technology, you know, imbecile, but I carry um, like raffle tickets and the kids get this golden ticket if they show socially inclusive behaviour. So if they invite – I use this story. I, I, I used to go to school with a kid named Terry and he had terrible body odor and he was a Gumby in the playground and everything, right? No one wanted him on your side. But when I teach it to undergrads, I said, there's, there's going to be, there's going to be this kid in your class and no matter what, people aren't going to want to play with him. But when I do the grouping activities, the kids that volunteer to take the Terry in the group or volunteer to work with kids that would normally not feel themselves included in a particular activity, I make a massive deal about that behaviour. A kid that says, I'll come and join our team or come with us because, like Aaron said, they run to the middle and they haven't got someone, they haven't got a team to be part of. The ones that say, yes, take um, take this kid, right? And I go, wow, here's your golden ticket. And you know what? You can cash that golden ticket in for a goal head start or you get to knock over pins or you get an extra two minutes on uh, to complete that activity. And you know what? All of a sudden, the kid that's, socially inclusive becomes hot property for the rest of the lesson everyone wants and it's it's just changed the entire dynamic and the focus of my class and we i think um andy andy's got his school bell ringing yes um did anyone want to um i don't know next do we want to transition to the next thing we we think there's a number of ways to group kids but i I just want to say one thing to add to your sixth sense comment dean is that I think that we um, we ultimately are striving to to create that sixth sense in our teaching and to understand. So I under, I um, understand your perspective with new teachers needing these formal grouping strategies, and I and I get all that. But again, mm-hmm. we are ultimately striving to know our students, and just like our first four episodes here, we emphasize the point of building relationships and understanding our kids. So. Ultimately, I think that's the, the direction that, that we're going as well, is that you, you've got to know your students, and therefore knowing your students yeah. allows you to group. Can I, can I just ask a question of Dean? Because I know yeah, this is something that you have talked about before and, and maybe done some research on. Like, so we're talking about grouping, um, whether it's teacher choice or student choice. I know you've, you've talked, on, I've talked to you in the past, about perceived choice of students. Yeah. So I don't yeah, know if, there's, if you can speak to that at all about you know, the idea of benefits or, or of teacher grouping versus student grouping versus student choice, things like that? Yeah, so just just very quickly, I'll be because uh, I won't chew up too much time on this. So the student choice, the, the, the meta-analytical literature on student choice, if you give students the, the, the choice of what they want to do, they will generally choose low learning outcomes, right? They'll, in other words, they'll choose to do things that won't have a massive impact on their, their learning can we have the music on? Can they listen to a particular song? All right, it doesn't really affect their achievement outcome. But so I think the notion, I think in terms of the motivation literature, we know that that autonomy and and choice do play a significant role in terms of motivation. I, I use the I use the notion of perceived choice, where students have you give them a choice, but the two choices are between high impact outcomes. Right, or high achievement outcomes. So they still feel like they're exercising some 
autonomy or power over over that but they're really you're really narrowing their choices down to things that that make a difference we do it with our kids right as parents you know you can choose to clean your room or you can choose to clean your sister's room you make the choice right? <laughs> it's not really a choice but um the perception that you've you've at least given them some power in the scenario can be a good thing right. aaron okay aaron uh, sorry you. yeah i got it off the uh related to that I, I'm, I'm gonna do then we're gonna backtrack back to andy's comment but I think if we do let, we have to, it's, it is the perception of choice, but we know that autonomy and, and that like if, with, if you let kids pick an activity, um, when I do workshops on this, I have a model called praise, but when I do workshops, it's, you can choose to catch it with, two, catch a beanbag with two hands, one hand or the back of your hands and let kids make the choice. You as the mm -hmm. teacher set the three things they can choose from, just like Dean said. And typically, again, I don't, I'm not by no means an exercise psychologist, but typically what kids will choose is the activity that, that challenges them but they can be successful. They won't pick the easiest thing. They'll pick the thing that they can be successful, but it's a little bit more difficult for them. And I think that goes back to this whole letting them have choices in grouping. We're currently working with a tool um, based on McKinsey SoFit, and we have it's called SoFit Plus, and we're videoing and looking at original levels. <laughs> original name. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, it's easy to identify with it. So, um, Andy, back to your, your, with super, your different super strategies. Social. Yeah, super so. <laughs> we had other names, but I won't. I won't repeat them on here. Um, Andy, with respect to having a variety of ways you do that, does that ever interfere with your the efficiency of your lesson? Meaning, you don't really you get a feel for the class, and then all of a sudden it takes you a few minutes to. I mean, if it takes a minute, maybe not. But if it takes two minutes of a sixty minute lesson. That's a pretty good chunk just to get them into partners. So does that ever come an issue where it becomes extremely inefficient? Absolutely. Yeah, sure it does. And it's um, it can be those situations when I've misread um, those group dynamics uh, or I, I don't know what's going on and then suddenly there's there's a behavior issue that I have to step in and, and take time to kind of have a side discussion and get the other kids busy during that time. So it's <laughs> by, by no means perfect and uh, it doesn't work all the time but uh, in general there's flow there and it can happen pretty quickly. I think one of the things I wanted to touch on related to that and why I asked that question with efficiency is you know I do this workshop on management that Dean talked about attending and uh, people come up afterwards and say this is awful militaristic and that's not my point. My, it, it, it comes across that way early on in the beginning of the year you have to set your routines. But man, it becomes so much more efficient. And it's not efficient to make sure I get to all my cues and throwing. That's not my point. My point with efficiency in a lesson is it gives me as a teacher a lot more time to get to know my students as individuals. If I have Correct. to spend if I have to spend five minutes getting kids into partners, A, they're not going to be very active. And yeah, I don't like that either. But I'm spending all this I don't get I can't ask Joey how his weekend was. I can't do that because I'm spending all this time spinning my wheels trying to figure out if I'm efficient, I can do, I talk about instruction, when I, the, the model that I use with um, and having limited instruction, but that's whole group instruction. And then once you give the, you don't just sit back and say, wow, that was pretty good cues I gave. No, you get around and get to know and talk to kids individually. A lot of the time it has nothing to do with uh, the content. It's how was your weekend? How's your team? How's your mom? How's your little sister? Those types of things that helps you build rapport that without efficient management, you cannot build rapport with students unless you have just chaos and recess is basically the other. And I, again, I think the 
the idea of this efficiency is one that that we've been able to um, implement at least here anecdotally, and we're starting to do some research with it that I think will be something that um, we can build off of. And I think I think they're all great points, and I, I think what uh, that's been a really productive conversation. Actually, I, I I get the same feedback you do, Aaron, is about it's militaristic, but at the end of the day, I I I, I want to be able to get the grouping thing done. Um, I want it to be efficient so I can move on to the stuff that makes a difference in their learning. And I suppose that's the next question I want to ask is if we're really about learning, we know that questioning, questioning techniques are one of the most important ways to promote student thinking. So I, I see it done particularly poorly in most PE classes I've run when teachers uh, – wanted to press a student's understanding of a, of a movement or a, or, a, or a concept when they're trying to do it in a PE lesson. So I really want to wonder how people tackle this, this questioning dilemma. How do, we ta- how do we question kids in a physically active environment, in a movement environment that promotes their thinking to be better movers, to solve problems, etc.? Nathan, you want to have a crack at that one? Yeah, I'll have a crack. Um, I think... I think we've talked about this before actually on one of our previous episodes about that like sometimes the way that we question kids is inherent to our personality as an, as an individual and whether we're an a inquisitive person and whether we just have that capacity to be able to diagnose and see what's going on and ask questions that are directly related to what we, what we see. I think for me, um, and one of the, the best examples I saw of it was um, a workshop that I went to last year at um, APEC in Hong Kong with, with Shane Pill um, and his sort of taking a group through the idea of the game sense approach to, to teaching and the way that he just basically would stop a game, ask a question, start the game, stop. And I think like that's a, a strategy that I've definitely used a lot. My kids, I, I hate the idea of stopping something that's, either not working very well or is working well um, and bringing all the kids in and sitting them down or completely stopping and then and then and then talking about it and then sending them back out if you can stop an activity like almost like you said before Dean like um, hands on knees look at me really quick question look for an answer straight back into it can I can I just jump in on that I, I, I know I know um... There's going to be some TGFU zealots and game sense advocates out there, and I mean I'm a big fan of the model too. But I also know it's incredible. It's an incredibly difficult model. I've done the research on this with pre-service teachers and practicing teachers, and questioning's what they get wrong, in my experience and in my research. Right? They one they don't ask good questions. Well, they don't ask questions all together because they think the kids are active and if I ask them a question, then I'm going to break up that activity. I'm also reluctant with the whole I've – seen, I've seen the models where they stop the whole group and ask a question and that becomes so frequent it just drives it to distraction. The kids go, oh, why are you stopping us again? Let's play. Or you, you didn't need to ask the whole group that question, right? So one of the techniques I use is I float when they're playing that game, I float amongst the group and I tap them on the shoulder and say, well, why did you pass that ball to that person? Or, um, could it, could you be in a better position? Right. You want to, you want to write a reply on that? Nathan? Yeah, definitely. No, 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 I totally agree with you. It's like I sort of said, it's that being able to diagnose what's going on. And we've mm. talked about it before. If I can, if I'm circulating, like you say, and I can see things are happening, being able to say, okay, you know, Joey's having difficulty with this. I'm just going to have a quick word in his ear while the game's still happening. And I think the idea of asking good questions, I, I totally agree with you. 
um, even though that's backslapping, um, yeah. that, you know, we don't ask good questions. And I think it comes down to knowing what our outcome is going to be at the end. If I, if I know what I want students to achieve or what I'm looking for in terms of what learning is, is going to look like, then I'm going to be able to ask the questions that lead to that. If I don't really know what I mm. want to see or what I'm looking for, then my questions are going to be are not going to be crap. very yeah they're going to yeah, be, be crap, right. basically so if I know that I want student A to be able to demonstrate certain criteria, then I can scaffold those questions in a way that's going to help them to get there. If I'm just playing a game of basketball and I think that okay if you can score a basket and your your team wins and that's all that I really care about, then the questions aren't going to to lead up to that. So I think planning and knowing what we're looking for will help us to ask good questions. Yeah, I'll, oh yeah, I'll add to that. So I think it's that idea of planned versus spontaneous questioning. And, and I will, once the, the real guts of the lesson begins, um, I will have my driving question posted. So I always think my way through based on where we are in the unit, what that driving question will be for the class. That is a quick hold group discussion where I have that question uh, made visual on a poster or uh, on, on the uh, flat screen TV, whatever it is. But that's the kind of driving theme. And then at that point, when, once the kids are off doing their activities, like Dean and Nathan um, alluded to, it's that, that side questioning, that spontaneous questioning that's happening. And Nathan, you said that we're not good at asking questions, but I, I think it's that what we need to do is continue to put ourselves in that situation where we get better at asking um, those spontaneous questions, you know, where we just have to read the situation and ask the appropriate question. That, that takes a lot of practice. So I don't think that, it's, that we're not good at it. I think that we sometimes as teachers don't spend enough time practicing that, that skill. So I think, again, just to um, summarize that that driving question to start is how I begin the guts of the lesson. Then it goes over to the, those um, spontaneous uh, questions that we need to ask depending depending on what's happening. And just yeah. a real quick comment. I think this goes to, again, it's all it, this theme that we keep going back to is, is efficiency. How do we get them out of the locker room? All these things that and, and allow for us to be more efficient as teachers and, and it to goes teach. back to, you know, this, just to teach Aaron would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, you know, again, and, and it's, and it, it goes back to kind of what Andy said. It's, it's, it's so hard for a new teacher. You just have to get this experience to learn that internal clock that, you know what, I'm about out of time and you know what, I need to finish this up and I didn't get to this, but that's okay. I can wrap up this way when I had this plan and it's just experience. But if you don't have experience, if your experience for 10 years has not been to be an efficient teacher, if I come to work with you on year 11, it's really hard for you to become an efficient teacher. And I think this is one of the things, Dean, you may agree or disagree with me, that we fall short on, on in the PEAT programs, is we spend so much time worrying about objectives and making sure that they know how to do the forehand clear in badminton and way too little time focusing on, on how to teach and way too much time on all the content that in the long run, if you don't know how to teach, is entirely irrelevant. Yeah, am and I wrong, Dean? Like, no, you're not wrong, but I'm not going to give you praise for that kind of response. But no, no, absolutely. What 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 the biggest issue is is that we uh, where the curriculum documents now read like hi-fi assembly instructions, right? And you and I both know I have not come across a single curriculum 
across the world where the progressions between the years and between the activities is based on any evidence, any – well, that's wrong – any substantial evidence to say this is the way or this is the learning theory that underpins why I can defend this progression from this year level to this year level or this activity to this activity. I think in its guts we – and we've spoken about this – is you're knowing your students – you're knowing that uh, a curriculum gives you some content in different areas that they, the state or the jurisdiction expects you to cover, whether it be gymnastics or athletics or game, ball sports or whatever that is. And then you making making decisions about I need to make – I need to teach this content. I need to be as efficient as possible and see that my students, if I'm teaching them over four weeks, they see four weeks' worth of growth in that content. Right, uh, John Hattie talks about this very frequently. Is that powerful education systems invest in that notion that one year of schooling equals one year of student growth? And we know systems are, and this is no different from PE. If kids, if whatever time they're allocated, it's 300 hours in for a for a stage group in 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 my state here. It's different in other states, but you know what? If you've got your kids for 60 minutes a week or or four hours a fortnight or whatever it is, they get four hours worth of movement or learning growth in that time. Now, that's not going to get captured in a curriculum document. So I think what we need to start thinking about, you alluded to it, Nathan, is we need to be re teach our new teachers to diagnose learning, to know that they've got strategies to intervene and that they can evaluate at the end. Let's Trends, I mean, let's move on from this topic and really I know that um, – I know Andy especially is passionate about this and I think it speaks to some good learning theory is how do we start to wind up a lesson, right? So getting them – we're starting to bring it to a close. We want them to reflect. I mean, this sits really nicely with experiential learning theory and, and to assess what they've covered in that and be able to pro give them some time to process that learning and then obviously – chuff them off to the English class where the English teacher is going to complain how sweaty and smelly they feel after our lesson. Andy, you want to go with that one? Yeah, I think it's that idea, and I've seen this happen a lot with uh, the schools that I've kind of visited and the teachers I've observed is is that, that pressure they put on students to perform their skill in front of the whole group. Let's see what you learned today. Can, can you show us what you learned? And then the kids mm. have to get up in front of the whole class to perform, and that's something I stopped doing years ago go because it, it's just a waste of time to, to get that one unless there's that special circumstance where you're going you're gonna to completely empower a student by allowing them to sh show their progress. But, but it's that idea of I will, I will get the kids to find a partner and perform for a partner or perform uh, for a small group rather than the whole class. So I'm getting multiple kids uh, showing what they've learned for a group group of kids that are watching them, a very small group of kids or a partner, and then you flip-flop and let the other um, student uh, show their what they've learned. So it's that idea of uh, getting out of the mindset that we have to uh, have kids show what they've learned to a whole class and, and maximize the time um, by getting them to show what they've learned in, in smaller groups and perfect time for us to sit back and kind of observe. Mm, I think there's something on that too. I mean, I was when I met with Dean Krelars a couple, and most of you have heard of Dean, a big physical literacy advocate. But one of one of one of the things he talks about that I'm really I take a real lot of heart with. I saw him giving a 
uh, a seminar to some physiotherapists who work in football teams, mainly soccer. So, and he talks about. I thought this was a really powerful concept is when we rehabilitate athletes is that quite often the rehabilitation process is done in isolation of the social context. And what I mean by that is, is he, he has these regimes where, you know, the, it's not, it's not to be able to perform just the skill with your teammates is that quite often athletes are expected to perform the skill in front of crowds and in front of ambient noise and all these other things that are going on. So what he's built into these rehab programs is, been able to perform, to use your analogy, Andy, in a social setting. Now, but that's the very end product, right? That's in, in the regime. You've got to go through these other steps, but before they're ready to transition, it's got to be you know, the social space in which that skill or that rehab has been executed. I took some thinking about away from that is I think you're right. I, I think these a lot of outcome standards-based um, uh, curricula are saying, well, you need to do it at the end of every lesson, and I think that's wrong. I think there are there are there are numerous steps we get to before we expect the social demonstration of what kids have learned, you know, in front of their peers, in front of others, and maybe the stuff you talk about is, do we need to allocate, or, or, or to what extent do lessons need a closure, and a closure where um, to you know sort of steal John Dewey, David Kolb's experiential learning uh, philosophies is that you, you, you need time to reflect and you need time to maybe even question them uh, about that, uh, that reflection um, period. Yeah. Can I, Does anyone? Yeah, can yeah. I ask a question about that? I think like this is something that often um, I get asked or I know that has been the conversation amongst um, the PE community a lot is the idea of, reflection as being this notion of sit down time and talk time versus activity time. Um, mm. And I know Andy can probably speak to this as well. Um, you know, how do we build in, is it okay to have how much sit down time or, or talk time do we have versus activity time? Is that okay? Is it not okay? I think this is a real um, area that a lot of teachers um, have this internal conflict about whether whether that's okay to in a lesson, how much of that time should we be using? So I don't know, maybe Dean. You well, let's bring talk to that? let's 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 bring that full circle. We all we all said if you're stretching your kids before PE gets, you're a bit of a peanut, right? Because you know it's not done properly. But maybe that we do know that stretching at the end of uh, physical activity is where the most benefit comes from, especially especially in terms of flexibility and injury prevention. And maybe we can do that. Maybe we can have a hard think about, well, when we're starting to cool them down, get them to come back down to earth, or one of the better thing, and they are stretching, is maybe that's the time we're starting to ask those reflective takeaway questions. What are people's, what's people's thinking on that? Yeah, I think that's a great time. And I think this also, this, this idea that the quote-unquote learning experience is done at 60 minutes or 30 minutes or however long, it would be a great time when they're stretching or those types of things. And I know Andy does some things where they walk and reflect just talk about how do you tie what we did today so you, to outside these four walls or if you're outside, outside the PE class, that the lesson's not over, that we need to um, tie this in some way. Hopefully you're doing it throughout the entire lesson, but to get them to think it's not done. We're not, you know, it isn't this nice little 60 minutes and then we go do something else that tie it into the rest of your life. I think that's something that we're missing. And what you just said made me think of that, Dean, to tie that together while they're doing something that is, is uh, quote-unquote useful or not just some trivial activity they're doing. 
Yeah, I think yeah. I think um, for me as well, there's a one quote that I and I have it up on my wall here, and I feel like I'm constantly um, sharing it with my kids and stuff, and especially elementary kids because we know that inherently for a lot of them they just want to play. I guess if you want to use a really simple word, um, they don't want to necessarily reflect on things. And, and the quote that I always come back to is is from John Dewey about we don't learn from experience, we learn from reflecting on experience. Um, so the idea that, you know, if we're just viewing PE as a space where games are taking place or activities are happening, if we don't have that reflection piece, then really it's no, what we're doing isn't physical education. It's, it's supervised playtime. Um, so I, I sort of, that's what drives me when, when people ask, well, you know, that doesn't seem, it doesn't seem right that you're using this time to, to have the, the students reflect or. Um, you know, if I, I in, in my program, we have, you know, we have um, electronic portfolios that the kids do and, I, and I'll actually take one 45 minute lesson every, you know, six to eight weeks where they are in a, in a computer room or in a classroom looking at video, looking at, at photos, reflecting critically on, on what they've learned in that unit and, and people say, well, how do you, what about that, that time? But for me, that's valuable learning time because if, if it's all just about doing, then they're not, you know, how do we, how do we look at that as a, a learning experience? Yeah, I just, uh, I'll just uh, kind of conclude my thoughts with uh, the idea of process versus product and, and kind of the idea that we, if we build a culture in which the process of learning is highlighted, then the learning doesn't stop when the class ends, you know, so I think it's just that general feeling that we have to, um, kind of create in our in our classes is uh, the idea that the process always trumps product so if we can um, kind of set up that learning environment then then the students will understand the the power of the learning process hopefully um, so, so yeah Andy are you suggesting it doesn't matter if I can make seven out of 10 free throws or eight out of ten then um, you may be on the right <laughs> path kidding. with that <laughs> okay. Okay, way, way to oversimplify Simplify the debate, Aaron. But that's all right. <laughs> I think. I that's think, my I job. Think, uh, <laughs> sweeping generalizations breed for narrow minds, but that's fine. <laughs> we no. I think. I think. I think. Um, to wrap up today, I think this has been a really productive conversation. We think we're coming up yeah. hour. So you think about how much of your time we've just wasted in this hour, and we're probably this has probably been replicated in PE lessons all around the globe at the moment. So uh, we took the 60 minutes today because we really wanted to explore these um, these issues. I think um, a great way to finish up is, yeah, I, I think we don't focus on process enough, Andy. I think that's a good point. I think process and product are important, and I think people often get the emphasis wrong. Uh, I think we've covered some really big ticket items today, and hopefully if you if you feel like leaving some non um, – uh, we would encourage you to leave feedback on this podcast, but just don't blow us up. Make sure it's all negative or you just want to give us a hit up. But hashtag, judging hashtag we, the fundamental movement. <laughs> yeah, if you yeah, the fundamental something. If you if you get the um if you if you do think that some of these ideas could be explored in new ways, we'd be really keen to hear from you. Anyway, that's all we've got time for today. I want to uh, thank the usual suspects as before: the Kaiser Sose, uh, Andy Vasily. Thanks so much, Andy. Uh, Fred Fenster there in Singapore. Um, Nathan Horn and the Dean Keaton of Physical Education, Aaron Beatley. Thanks so much, gentlemen, and we'll see you next time on the Fundamental Movement. Looking good.
Taking medicine, even though I see the man.